0: Welcome to Pound the Rock, The Score's NBA podcast. We are here with our final episode of the 2022-23 NBA regular season. I am Joe Wolfon, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. What's going on? We made it. Another
1: time where we can say we made it. Shania Twain, or was it Faith Hill? No, Shania Twain, right? Looks like we made it. Look how far we've come, my baby. Was that Shania Twain or Faith Hill?
0: I think that's Shania Twain. All right. Well, CanCon, baby.
1: Yes. Premium Um,
0: CanCon. We are uh, recording this on Thursday night on the eve of a long weekend. Happy Passover to all who celebrate. Happy Easter to all who celebrate. And putting a bow on the regular season. First, I guess what we'll do is we'll just take a quick look around the league just to see i guess where we stand ahead of the final weekend of games because there is still some stuff that needs to get sorted out between now and when the play-in games begin which i believe they'll start on monday right tuesday
1: tuesday, tuesday so. are the seven eight games wednesday are the nine ten games no games thursday
0: and then friday is the uh, are the final games for the eight seeds. so basically things are starting to take shape In the East, the top five is fully locked in. We have one series that is set, uh, which is Cavs-Knicks. The Nets are closing in on the sixth seed. It's starting to look very likely that it's going to be Heat Hawks in the 7-8 and Raptors-Bulls in the 9-10. The West remains definitely more in flux, but the top four in the West is set. The order, I guess, isn't 100% solidified. The Nuggets have clinched the one seed. The Grizzlies are close to locking up the two seed but the kings still have a sliver of a chance thanks to uh, that grizzlies loss to the pelicans last night which saw them blow a 19 point lead then erase a six point deficit in the final what 10 seconds 11
1: seconds without a timeout
0: just insane and then and then (laughs) lost the plot in overtime but uh they blew a uh, 19
1: point lead rally from 11 from six down In the final 11 seconds that are timeout. And then we're like immediately down by double digits in overtime.
0: Yeah. Ridiculous conclusion to that game and cost them a chance to lock that two seat up. So the Kings are still alive for number two. And that actually could have some major implications just in terms of whether they're actually going to play their guys in these games down the stretch. Both of those teams, right? Like there are games of consequence involving them. Cause after, after that top four, so sorry, Denver, Memphis, Sacramento and Phoenix, Phoenix is locked in at four. And then we have a race. I mean, the race really is to get the six seed. I think like, does anyone want the five seed and to, you know, not only to see Phoenix in the first round, but then, you know, your reward, if you get through Phoenix is to face Denver in round two. Um, with it, obviously in Denver for
1: the biggest games in that series in the mile high city. Yeah. Where for, Denver yeah. is
0: what, like 35 and six this year or yeah. something crazy like yeah. that in the altitude. To be fair, the Grizzlies also have an insane home record this season. So yeah. FedEx forum is not an easy place to play either, but it does seem that being in that, you know, three, six bracket is going to be preferable to being in the, the four five. So The Clippers and Warriors are both 42 and 38. The Clippers own the tiebreaker there. And their last two games are against Portland and Phoenix. And again, Phoenix is locked into four, so they will probably be resting that game. So it's really up to the Clippers, right? Like how badly (laughs) do they want to not be the five seed, I suppose? Because they would have to work pretty hard, certainly to lose that Portland game and then potentially have to work pretty hard to lose that Phoenix game as well. So they're, they're the most likely team, certainly, to end up in five. And that is going to create quite a, a bracket there with them and Phoenix potentially in round one and then possibly one of those teams advancing to play Denver in the second round. The Lakers and, and Pelicans are both 41 and 39, so they're both one game back of the Warriors. But the Lakers own the tiebreaker with the Pelicans and the Warriors. So it's going to be like, really difficult, I think, for the Pelicans to get to number six. But I think it's still very much in play for the Lakers. And why that King situation is important is because their next game and Golden State's next game is shit. I can't remember now. Is it in Golden State or is it in Sacramento? Do you remember off the top of your head? I don't. Um Sacramento's going to have something to play for presumably in that game. Although the Grizzlies are playing that night two hours earlier in Milwaukee. So I, do wonder, like, maybe if how that game is going come tip-off of Kings-Warriors, if that impacts what the Kings decide to do in terms of playing their guys.
1: Yeah, it very much could. Also, you mentioned the Pelicans. Uh, Latest, I guess, non-update today is that Zion Williamson remains out indefinitely. It was two (laughs) weeks. Two weeks today from the last update, which was that he'd be reevaluated or updated in two weeks. There were some speculation he could play this weekend and uh, and be back in time for the playoffs but the latest update is that simply he remains out which I mean they are leaving it open-ended I guess like he could play in the playoffs but as I've been saying the whole time the way that they've managed his absences and injuries up till this point I have a really 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 hard time believing that they will then just throw him into the fire in the playoffs or a play-in game and so it's not happening He's not coming back. That's what I'm saying. While it's not official and, you know, neither one of us are uh, doctors, if I were a betting man, I would be betting on the fact that his season is done.
0: The only way to approach any Zion injury situation at this point is just to assume that he's not going to come back and he's not going to play. And if he does, then great. That's gravy. You get to be so pleasantly surprised. But don't set yourself up for disappointment by holding your breath and waiting for him to come back or expecting him to come back. Just assume that he isn't. Yeah. Uh, that said, the Pelicans have been playing some really good basketball. They've kind of turned things around after a, just a horrible slump after the All-Star break. And they have a little bit, bit of momentum here. Um,
1: the thing with, man, the problem with all this stuff is that it literally can change in like 24 hours.
0: Yeah, and so the Wolves, I guess, I mean, they they are 40 and 40. They pretty much cost themselves a shot at getting to one of those top eight spots. And like the Pelicans are presumably going to start on the road in the play-in, but they'll at least get two cracks at it. Whereas like the Wolves are have a chance to be one and done because they lost that game to Portland, which is, <laughs> I, I cannot believe. They were 19 and a half point favorites was, in that game. Was
1: that I believe it was the biggest upset in like 28 years or something.
0: I just know that it was the biggest of this season because we had already talked about how the Mavs lost to the Hornets like a week earlier when they were 16 and a half point favorites had been the biggest upset of the season. So unless
1: I'm going crazy, I'm pretty sure I remember seeing in multiple places that it was the biggest upset, NBA upset since 1995. And the most hilarious part of that is that that just unbelievably embarrassing loss came after... I think 48 hours after Carl Anthony Towns had some post game comments after gonna... another loss where he talked about how he's going to he's going to talk to the team and and be a leader and like say things that need to be said that will result in them playing winning basketball and then they proceeded to suffer the worst defeat in terms of uh being a heavy favorite that loses in the NBA in almost 3 decades. That while he took, while events, he took 3 shots
0: by the way. Correct.
1: Correct. And if that entire sequence of events over that 48-hour span does not perfectly encapsulate Carl Anthony Towns, nothing does.
0: Man, I, you cannot make this shit up. Like, those <laughs> quotes, I, I messaged you even after I saw them being like, oh God, it, it's just so hard to root for it. I don't even root for this team, but it, like, I guess I had some vested interest in them being successful this season because of the prognosticating skin I put in the game by like predicting that they were going to have this great regular season and so I guess that in some way put me on the side of well I hope this team performs well so I don't look like an idiot they performed tremendously disappointingly then kind of started putting the pieces back together to the point that we spent like half an episode talking about the strides that we had seen this whole team make and not 48 hours later they face planted like that like how many times is this team going to make me look like a complete idiot before I learn my lesson?
1: I mean, I don't know. I guess it depends how much longer their season lasts. I feel, <laughs> like, they, I feel like they've got one grand disappointment in them yet.
0: <laughs> I can't wait to see what form that disappointment and, takes. It, it's got to be losing to the Thunder, I guess, at home in the 9-10 plan. That's That's the yeah, final I mean, I'll, I'll indignity.
1: I I don't know if I'd go that far because I'm not convinced the Timberwolves are better than the Thunder. And OKC is the best player between the two teams. Also, I just did confirm it, that Timberwolves loss to the Blazers when they were 19.5 point favorites was the biggest NBA upset since 1995.
0: By the way, I also looked up that, that uh, Kings-Warriors game is in Sacramento. So it turns out it doesn't even matter whether the Kings are resting their guys or not. That's an L for Golden State, yeah. which means the Lakers are looking good for that sixth seed but um, that's all still to be settled and then obviously you have the Thunder and Mavs in the hotly contested race for the 10 seed two teams that could not be further apart in terms of how badly they need this and uh, they're right now tied at 38 and 42 but the Thunder hold that tiebreaker uh, the Mavs did kind of keep their hopes alive with that white knuckle win over the Kings last night where Kyrie hit just a barrage of contested jumpers. Um, the Mavs close with the Bulls and Spurs. The Thunder are about to tip off against the Jazz. So if you're listening to this, that game will have already happened, and you'll have more information than us. But uh, the Thunder close with the Jazz and the Grizzlies, and the Grizzlies by that point, I guess, may or may not have something to play for. So that's where we stand. Uh, with the final weekend of regular season play beckoning. And with that, I think we can move on to getting our uh, our end of season awards out of the way. Let's do it. So uh, we're, we're also going to do our all NBA teams. But just because we don't have enough time, frankly, to get into extensive convos in the way that we did for all defense, we decided mutually that we are just both going to list our all NBA teams, which I don't want that to give the impression that we didn't put a lot of thought into it. I think we both really did, but we just frankly don't have time to get into like a whole debate about it. We're just going to list them and leave it at that. Unless there is some like huge disagreement that one of us has or, or a question that we have about the process behind a pick. I think maybe why don't we save that to the end? Because, Otherwise, probably if we list the All NBA teams, it's going to like give that. some things away okay. in terms of in terms of our award picks. So we'll save the All NBA teams to the end, and let's do awards now. Uh, do you want to like start with the minor ones and kind of work up to the biggies, or should we start with the biggies and work backwards?
1: Uh, you pick. I'm indifferent.
0: All right, let's get MVP out of the way. All right, you first. Okay. This is a pregnant pause, my friend. Come on. Out with it. Spit it out.
1: For the first time since Larry Bird in the 1980s, Nikola Jokic would get my vote to become a three-time defending MVP. I will say this. The last two years, I have been very much in favor of Nikola Jokic being the MVP and it actually not being as close as some people thought. I thought... If he didn't win the last two years, I actually thought it would be like, that's ridiculous. He's clearly been the MVP. This year, I think it is way closer. And I do think at some point we're splitting hairs. Like if either of Joel Embiid or Giannis Antetokounmpo wins MVP, I I won't even be able to summon the strength to really have that hot a debate about it because I genuinely believe these three guys are so close. Having said that, I also don't believe that means that you know, one of Embiid or Giannis should just get it because, you know, Jokic shouldn't get it three years in a row. And I do think, while I admit it's very close and we're splitting hairs, I do think that by a hair, Nikola Jokic has still been the best and most impactful player in the NBA over the course of the whole season. Has Joel Embiid outplayed him recently down the stretch over the last quarter of the season, maybe the second half of the season? Absolutely. No debate about that. Are both Joel Embiid and Giannis Antetokounmpo better defensive players than Nikola Jokic? 100% no doubt about that but I still think when you take the season as a whole start to finish impact on the game I still think Jokic would be my pick um there are a lot of different things I can point to again I know he faded a bit down the stretch but 25 points rounding here but roughly 25 points 12 rebounds 10 assists and a steal on 63 39 82 shooting or 70% true shooting. 502 players in the history of NBA basketball have averaged 24-plus points in a season. None have ever done it on 70% true
0: shooting. Can can I uh, uh, just interrupt you and ask, what's the closest that anyone's come to that? I'm genuinely curious.
1: It was Steph's 2017-2018 season when he averaged... 26.4 26.4 points on 67.5% true shooting.
0: So still like not even that close. Yeah. That, almost so, three three percentage points lower still on, right. on a true shooting basis.
1: And, and Jokic is doing that while almost averaging 10 assists as a center and still averaging 12 rebounds. And again, I fully concede that he is not the defensive player Embiid and Giannis are, but there are a lot of different ways you can look at it. And as much as people can say... Embiid and Giannis' teams are better than Jokic. Like one of the things I've seen this year is people saying Embiid has caught him in terms of overall performance and his team is better. And that's fine, except that the Sixers and Nuggets have kind of yo yoed in terms of who's had the better record throughout the season. The Sixers, the Nuggets were ahead for most of the year. The Sixers have pulled even down the stretch, very similar to the individual performances of Jokic and Embiid, if we're being honest. But if you look at whose team performs better with each player on the court, the 76ers with Embiid on the court, plus 9.2 per 100 possessions. The Nuggets with Jokic on the court, plus 12.7 per 100 possessions. That is a very large gap. And again, even when you look at defense, the Sixers are only 1.5 points per 100 possessions better with Embiid on the court. Compared to the Nuggets when Jokic is on the court. And I know that has to do with a lot of factors, not just how each one of them individually defends, but I still think that between the eye test, the box score stats, and when you do dig into like impact related stats and advanced stats, the gap is still there between not just Jokic and Embiid, not a shot on Embiid, but Jokic and Giannis during the regular season, Jokic and everyone else in the NBA. And as I know you've pointed out a couple of times this season, even the argument that well, the other Nugget, like the other Nugget starters have these insane on-off splits too. Yeah, but every single Nuggets metrics and plus minus are almost directly tied to whether they are on the court with Jokic or not, whereas Jokic- There's
0: no no, no almost about it, by the way. Yeah, it's just 100%. Court, right,
1: and Jokic's plus minus is what it is no matter who's on the court with him to the point where even as his play has dipped, the Nuggets ended up more than- 26 points per 100 possessions better when he's on the court as opposed to off. It is genuinely unfathomable the on-court impact he continues to have. And that is why, as great as Joel Embiid has been, he topped last year's career year with a new career year because Joel Embiid is an unbelievably great player. He just so happens to have the misfortune of playing in an era when as great as he is, he is the second best center and slightly behind a guy who's about, or in my opinion, should win his third straight MVP. So Jokic is my vote. I don't think he's going to be yours, but I would love to hear your argument. Well, I'll
0: I'll ask you first. So you, you laid out that case, but do you think, that Jokic is going to win the award? Like, is that... No. I know that's what you think should happen, but do you, do you don't. think that... Okay.
1: I think Embiid's going to win it. And again, as I said, like last year, if we had had the same conversation, as you know, I would have said, I, that's ridiculous. Like, Jokic deserves it so much more than ever. This year, if it's Embiid or Giannis, I will say, yeah, it's fine. Like, it was close enough that either one of those three guys I'm fine with. I'd still give it to Jokic, but I'm fine with one of the other two guys. My issue is, if anyone is voting for... Giannis or Embiid for any reason other than they believe that guy was the most valuable player over the course of the regular season if they believe that vote for him I'm completely fine with that but don't vote for one of those guys because you don't think Jokic should be a three-time MVP or three years in a row or whatever the case may be or some sort of lifetime achievement award for Embiid because he's the only one of the three that doesn't have one like vote for them because you actually believe they were the most valuable NBA player in the 2022-2023 season. That's what I believe Nikola Jokic was, regardless of the last two years.
0: It is a, a very well-made case, but I'm chucking it all out the window, cash. <laughs> I'm going with Joel. I think That's fine. He's had and, a
1: fantastic year.
0: And I promise you it is not about voter fatigue. I'm not a voter, I so can't have anything to do with voter fatigue. But I genuinely think that Embiid this season closed the offensive gap enough that his vastly superior defense actually does carry the day. And I-, I was already leaning this way, right? So it's not like the fact that Embiid put together that game against Boston, which what did he finish with like fifty-two and thirteen on like twenty yeah. for twenty-five shooting? to beat the Celtics on the same night that Jokic had one of his worst games of the season while the Nuggets got 20-pieced by the Rockets. Maybe that did help like tip it over the edge for me at the end of the day, but like, it was more about what that game crystallized for me about what Embiid has been doing to pretty much every defense he's seen this entire season, which is he doesn't do what Jokic can do in terms of elevating everybody around him. Pretty much nobody in the NBA can like nobody can really play make like Jokic, but it almost doesn't matter because if they just run their entire offense through him and it is all about him doing the heavy lifting in terms of scoring and just doing enough in terms of passing out of double teams or just pretending like double teams don't exist and scoring over them anyway or getting himself to the free throw line then that's in many ways just as good. And I know it's not quite as good because the Sixers offense is not as good as Denver's when those two guys are on the floor. Like Denver's offense with Jokic on the floor is insane. I think it's like 124 or 126,
1: 126. more.
0: 126, 126 per hundred possessions. Like that is batshit insane. But the Sixers offense when it beats on the floor is still really, really good. It's like not that big a difference, right? I think that it's it's all context dependent too. Like, are we gonna go up and down the rosters and you know try and figure out who is doing more with less? Or I, I mean, I think I have watched a ton of both of these guys this season. I think Embiid has become functionally unstoppable, and yeah, we've given a ton of credit to to Harden and talked about how him getting there has opened so much up for Embiid in terms of the spots it allows him to get to and how he doesn't, you know, have to put himself in those spots anymore, like doesn't have to create everything for himself. And Harden's playmaking has been incredible. And he does more than just, you know, simple pick and roll pocket passing, to be clear. But so much of that is like, lately, you've seen Maxi running a lot of pick and roll with Embiid, and you don't lose that much right? Like he's still able to make that little pocket pass and all Embiid has to do is like catch the ball at the free throw line. And it's like curtains, whether it's, you know, his agility and his ability to put the ball on the floor and Euro step around guys who might be waiting for him at the rim or power through them, but also just the mid-range jump shooting, which is beyond ridiculous. And I, at the end of the day, I don't know that that 70% true shooting mark for Jokic on the volume that he's doing it at which is, as you mentioned, almost 25 points a game, 27% usage. I don't know that that's that much or any more impressive, frankly, than Embiid doing 34 points a game on 37% usage at 65% true shooting. And I know the, the difference there is obviously Jokic is doing that while also facilitating extremely efficient offense for the Nuggets as a whole and everybody around him. But... Um, I I just think Embiid has been close enough offensively that the, the defensive gap is actually greater in Embiid's favor. Like at that end of the floor, I, I know and I believe that Jokic is not as bad as some people want to make him out to be. But the big difference, and it's a really crucial one to me, is like the way that the Nuggets operate on defense is they are sort of forced to do specific things in order to protect Jokic, right? Like the way they play defense is based in a lot of ways around Jokic's limitations. And they do do things to lean into his strengths as well, but it's more about papering over his limitations. And it's the complete opposite with Embiid, where everything that the Sixers do defensively is about using his strengths. So when they play him up at the level or have him switch out, it's not about like in the way that the Nuggets do with Jokic, where it's like, we can't have him in drop because he's not a rim protector and better to have him out at the level of the screen. It's like, well, and B is an amazing drop defender. He's an incredible rim protector. But what if we weaponized his size and ferocity and lateral explosiveness to like spring him on these ball handlers and blow stuff up at the level? Right. He you know, can't like, do that. Like they, they, they do that as like a weapon rather than as kind of like a band-aid. And I think that's a massive difference, man. And I've said it throughout the course of this season, like given some of the defensive minuses that are playing big minutes for the Sixers team, the fact that they have been top 10 pretty much start to finish this year is an enormous credit to Embiid and what he's been able to do at that end of the floor. So you I couple gave that. All
1: def- I gave him all defensive second team center uh, on my on our last episode.
0: That's the thing. So it's like we're talking about all this and we're talking about their offensive numbers and how close I think they are. I know you're making a face. You don't think they're all that close.
1: I don't. And I think Embiid has had just such a tremendous offensive season. I really think the gap is there still on the offensive end because of how much Jokic does as a playmaker.
0: Look, I don't deny that the gap exists. I just don't think that it's greater than the gap between them on defense this season.
1: No, listen, I think Joel Embiid has been great on both ends. And I think Jokic has been at best average on one of those two ends. And so I think for me to pick a guy who I'm saying is average on one end over a guy who I think is great on both ends, player A has to be so extraordinary on his end of strength that it renders that argument moot. And I believe Nikola Jokic is that unbelievably extraordinary on the offensive end to render
0: that moot. I accept that argument. Uh, I'm not behind it this time. I have been behind it in the past, but not this year. Would Uh, you
1: have gone uh, Giannis second, or would you still have Jokic as No, no, definitely
0: Jokic second and Giannis. I mean, Giannis has still had an unbelievable season. He's definitely in this mix. I think it's really cool that these three guys you know, these three bigs basically are going to finish one, two, three for a second straight year. And in the case of Jokic and Embiid one and two for a third straight year, it's just goes to show you again, I don't think people really need to be reminded of this, but how cyclical these things are, where there was a lot of talk about the death of the NBA center for a while. And now it's, it's bigs who are sort of dominating these prestigious awards yet again. And I think that's really cool. And I, I also said this last year when we were talking about these three guys being like the clear top three in MVP voting, which is that what, what is cool about it is how different they are, like how they all dominate the game in completely distinct and unique ways. And in Giannis's case, I just feel, I I think his defense, and, and I mentioned this on our last episode when I didn't even put him on one of my all defense teams, I just think it hasn't been quite up to the standard that it has been in the past. And I do think part of that is the offensive load he's had to carry, but it still is the reality. Whereas like I, you know, I, I honestly think at the end of the day, Embiid has carried a pretty much equivalent offensive load. And I think he's been significantly better offensively. So if you're asking me to pick, who do I think is the best player in the league? Who who do I want to pick right now? If I, I want to make a playoff run and I can have anybody in the league, I'm still picking Giannis, but I don't think he performed as well as those other two guys over the course of this regular season. Yep, I agree with that. Okay, so you know what? Why don't we take the break there, and then we'll come back and we can do uh, the rest of the awards.
1: What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the SCORE app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the SCORE's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show.
0: Alright Cash, we got MVP out of the way. Hopefully the rest of these awards won't take us as long to haggle over. Uh, I wonder... I guess if we will have any significant disagreements and we can find out right now. So why don't we get to defensive player of the year, which we sort of started to talk about on our last episode. And honestly, I think did a lot of the legwork in terms of explaining why our top two guys were our top two guys, but uh, who did you wind up landing on in this race?
1: I went with Brook Lopez. Yeah, you
0: indicated as much yeah. on that last episode. So,
1: if you go listen to our last episode or if you already have listened when when I named him my first team all defensive center, I think we both did. And I I think I admitted then that he would be my defensive player of the year pick. And I noted that I thought, you know, Jaron Jackson's definitely deserving of candidacy and, and he was in the mix for me. But for Lopez to do what he's done this season while also playing 600 more minutes than Jackson, I just think he is the deserving winner this year. It's been this kind of like culmination of this really cool career arc and development, honestly, on both sides for him. And and the fact that he could become the oldest player to win it at 35 is cool. Again, that's not why I would give it to him, but I just think those are all cool components of the fact that I think he's the deserving winner. And uh, again, if if you didn't hear my explanation that episode, there is a lot more that went into it. So please do go back and and listen to our last episode when we did our all defensive pick. But one of the things I did note in that episode for anyone that might be thinking, You know, he's got the benefit of say Drew and Giannis and that's fair, but again, the Bucks defensive rating with Brooke Lopez on the court and Giannis off is still better than the Grizzlies defensive rating with Jaron Jackson on the court, the Cavs defensive rating with Evan Mobley on the court, and the Heat's defensive rating with Bam Adebayo on the
0: court. Yeah, I think this wound up being a little bit tougher for me than it was for you. Like you seemed pretty confident in that pick and set on that pick. And I did ultimately land on Brooke. As well, but it really did just come down to that minutes gap. For but me. I like, think six, that's fair, man. Six hundred minutes is a huge discrepancy; like it really is. And I, you know, I mentioned this on the last episode too, where it's like part of that is beyond Jaron's control, where he suffered an injury, and like I, I hate to penalize him for that. But then you think about the part of it that kind of is in his control, where you know, you know, the the foul trouble does keep him from playing as often and you know i also think that that's maybe a little bit overstated because at the end of the day he's playing like two fewer minutes per game than Brooke. like it's more about just like the time missed to injury than it is about the fouls and i also thought it was important to note this stat that you love that i also think is great like when when you talk about defensive plays per foul mm-hmm. and how that can be a you know a, a really nice clean indication of defensive qualities. Like if you're able to make a lot of defensive plays without sending guys to the free throw line, like that's pretty impressive. Yeah, unless it's
1: changed since when I scripted that unfiltered. As of last week, Lopez was second in blocks per foul to only Walker Kessler.
0: So yeah, that that's a, a really important part of what makes Brook Lopez so good is obviously himself, like he doesn't foul a lot because of, like I say all the time, his incredible instincts and timing And never, like, biting on pump fakes, never committing too early to a ball handler, um, but just always having that sense of, like, the exact right moment to contest. And it's also about just, like, his understanding of how to use his size and to be a little bit more still than pretty much any other drop defender in the league, right? To kind of slow that whole mechanism down. And keep a ball handler guessing and just be that extremely solid presence in the middle is what allows the Bucks as a team to defend without fouling and it has done for years. So that is really important. But I also want to note first of all, so Jaron's at 4.6 fouls per 36 minutes, which is exactly where he was at last year when we both felt he deserved to be a Defensive Player of the Year. So, you know, I don't think that's a huge issue. And then, you also look at that stat like defensive plays per foul per 36 minutes. He's at 5.1 combined steals and blocks (laughs) per 36 compared to, to the 4.6 foul. So he's still coming out on the positive end of that ratio in spite of the fact that he's a little bit more foul prone than, you know, some of the other defenders that we would consider, I guess, to be in this conversation as the best in the league. Um, His defensive playmaking this year has been completely off the charts and I've mentioned, you know, the rim protection like 46.7% allowed at the rim just by far the best mark in the league. Um, He he made this really difficult for me uh, in terms of the decision that I was ultimately going to land on and I kind of just looked at it and and felt like it was close enough in terms of like the quality when they both been on the floor that 600 minutes was just too big a gap for me not to give the nod to Brooke. And that's a boring answer to just be like, hey, I actually felt like Jaron was the better defender when they were both on the floor this year, but it was close and Brooke played more. I don't feel great about saying that, but I can't not take that into consideration either.
1: Yeah, because the award to me should be who had the greatest defensive impact this season, right? It's greatest impact on the entire season defensively. That's the way I look at it. And if it's that close between two guys and one guy played 600 more minutes, I think it then becomes a very easy choice to say that guy had a much greater defensive impact this season because, you know, game to game, it was close, but 600 minutes is 600 minutes, man. Like, that's huge. I don't think you should feel bad about that like I I think that is a very valid argument when we are talking about two guys that are that close in terms of game to game defensive impact
0: no I don't feel bad because I feel like it's not valid I just feel like it's boring (laughs) you know as a differentiator if they had played the same number of minutes then I would just be saying that I I felt like Jaron was the defensive player of the year so there you go the last opportunity for you know a, a player playing under 65 games to potentially win a major piece of hardware will potentially pass us by because Brooke has been that good. So we have a a unanimous defensive player of the year on this pod for the second straight year. Last year it was Jaron. This year it's Brooke. Congratulations to the owner of one of the coolest career arcs in basketball for uh, winning the second annual unanimous pound the rock defensive player of the year award. Uh, Let's move on to I'll give you the floor, actually. Where do you want to go next?
1: Let's go Rookie of the Year. Okay. I've started us off the last two, so why don't you give me yours?
0: I went with Paolo. Like, yep. I I did really give Jalen Williams a long, hard look. And I think that if we were just looking at, like, the last two or even three months of the season, I actually think he's a pretty easy winner here. But it took him a little while to get going and hit that level. Whereas Paolo, I feel like sort of hit the ground running. And I mean, this was a tough one for me and it just sort of crystallizes a a difficult decision that I find myself constantly having to make when I'm, whether I'm picking awards or you're ranking players in terms of like their impact on a season. It's like they have such different responsibilities that, it, it becomes very hard to compare. And, you know, at the end of the day, like, yeah, okay, so raw numbers, Paolo's look way more impressive, right? He's at 20.7 rebounds, four assists, whereas Jalen Williams is at like, you know, 14, four, and three. The efficiency gap is also enormous in Jalen Williams's favor, where he's shooting 58% from two and 36% from three for a true shooting percentage over 60%, just over 60%. And Paolo is at 47% on twos and 30% on threes. Now he makes up for some of that, which with how often he gets to the free throw line, which has been maybe the single most impressive part of his rookie season is just the force that he has played with and you know his ability to, to draw contact, with, which is something like rookies struggle with, right? Like not a lot of guys come into the league with that ability. And uh, he, he got to the line seven and a half times per game. But even with that, like all the free throws, he's still only at 53% true shooting compared to 60% for Jalen Williams. So I, I don't know, man. That's that's why it was tough for me. And I understand, like, he has more on his plate. But yes. the thing that I was thinking about.
1: 18% usage for Jalen, 28% for Paulo. Yes. True. And And like seven or eight extra shooting possessions per game.
0: Yes. Agreed. And that is inevitably going to drag down a player's efficiency, especially when like, I, I don't know, look at the offensive environment that Paolo is playing in, right? Like there's just not a lot of shooting there, not a lot of space for him to operate in. Not that like Oklahoma city is some spacing Haven, but getting to play next to Shea Gildress Alexander tends to make an offensive player's life a lot easier. The the one thing that kind of dissuaded me a little bit from that and made me rethink it was anecdotally, I was like, man, it seems like the games where Shea hasn't played or even just like when Shea's been on the bench, Jalen Williams has still been really good. So I looked it up and in 877 minutes this year, when he's been on the court and Shea's been off, Jalen has averaged 21.2 points and 5.3 assists per 36 minutes on 62.3% true shooting. So he's actually been better and more efficient when he's played without Shea. So in those situations, when he has actually had the responsibilities of basically being a lead creator, he's been awesome and straight up better than Paolo has been in that role. But still, at the end of the day, Paolo's had to do it more for longer. And I think that ultimately he still deserved the award for like the entire body of work. Um, If I was saying, you know, again, which, which rookie would I have? Which rookie would I take if I, like, wanted to win a game tomorrow? I actually think that I would take Jalen Williams kind of easily. But if I'm saying who's been the better rookie for the balance of this season, I think I would still go with Paolo.
1: I think you can say another player from this class has a higher ceiling. And I think Paulo Banquero has a very high ceiling, but... I am definitely open to the argument that Jalen Williams has an even higher ceiling. Hell, I'm open to the argument that Walker Kessler might have the highest ceiling in this class.
0: Like, I think that Jalen Williams is better than him right now, but I would still say I feel like Paolo has a higher ceiling. Like his physical tools are right. ridiculous. I, and like,
1: that's what I'm saying. I still think he himself has an insanely high ceiling, but I'm at least open to argument there are other guys in this rookie class that could be better than him long-term. I just don't think any of those guys have contributed more this season and had nearly the responsibility that he's had and like yeah I know there are still holes in his game whether you're talking about the shooting range and the efficiency that comes with that defensive consistency but I just think for a 20 year old rookie 19 when the season started to shoulder the on-court responsibility for an NBA team that he did this season and to just kind of grind it out, do his job, get to his spots, never really get deterred even when, you know, his shooting did fall off and to end up at the end of the day with averages of about 20.7 rebounds, four assists, play more than 2,400 minutes for a team that, okay, fine, not just because of him, but for an improving team that played solid basketball, I'd say, for the last like three or four months and is going to finish with 35 wins. I I just think it's been so impressive and and he deserves... The award for again being, you know, the best rookie this year, regardless of what you might think about guys' futures and ceilings. Although in, in your case, it sounds like you would still pick Paulo going forward
0: anyway. Well, yeah. Um, I mean, I'll just say like I think the reason for that, the reason I feel like Jalen is better right now is A because he's a better shooter, a uh, much better in between scorer as well. Like that little that, that floater game is very effective. And Paolo just like doesn't really have that right now and i actually think you know jalen's better defender right now but really the big differentiator to me at this moment is i think that uh jalen has a better feel for the game whereas and i don't think paolo's feel for the game is bad by any means like that is something that i definitely believe in his ability to develop over time so that's why i feel like his ceiling is still higher because I think that he can develop that. And then I just don't think there's any way that Jalen Williams can develop the type of physical tools that Paolo brings to the table, like his size, his fluidity as an athlete. And I mean, like his ability to add his size, like handle the ball and pass. And, um, you know, he, he's got really good footwork. Like he, he's going to be an unbelievably skilled player, I think for a really long time. And I don't I don't know why I feel like I have to make this case. Like yeah. I picked him as my rookie of the year, but sort of explaining why I feel like uh, Jalen Williams is better than him right now, but won't necessarily be better than him moving forward.
1: As I've said before, I think Paulo Boncero as a rookie reminds me of like, imagine if Blake Griffin had come into the NBA with some of the guard skills that he ended up flashing later in hmm. his career. Imagine if Blake Griffin... At his size came into the league already with those guard skills. That's the kind of mold of player that he is except with the already on-ball skills that Blake didn't really develop till later in his career. Even like they're both like 6'10", like Boncaro's huge man. Yeah. He is a power forward with yeah, a wings a handle. Yeah, a wings handle, exactly. A perimeter player's handle and and you know, self-creation and he's actually at 19 point like points per game, but If he can up that slightly over the last weekend of the season, he would be the first rookie since Luka Doncic four years ago to average 20 in a season. And then with respect to the shooting efficiency, I mean, you already touched on it a little bit, but while it definitely does need to get better if he's going to be an offensive focal point for a good team, his ability to get to the free throw line helps the overall efficiency. So in the end, his rookie true shooting percentage while averaging about 20 points per game ends up better than the rookie true shooting percentages of LeBron James, Kevin Durant, Wilt Chamberlain, Elgin Baylor, and then also... Different eras though, come on now. That's fair,
0: but... It's not just about the shots that he's taking, it's about the offensive environment that he's operating in, right? Like, who's playing around him? What is the spacing like? What are the offensive sets like? It's completely different.
1: Okay, but I also think that his ability to get to the free throw line is the differentiator there. And that's what I'm saying, that even though, even despite some of the shooting issues, his uncanny ability to get to the line still ended up giving him an overall efficiency and true shooting percentage that while still below league average, as by the way, all those guys also were below league average in their rookie years, is still higher than those guys. And in some cases on similar shot types. Now, the two guys I was going to mention Still, that he had better true shooting percentages as rookies. Also, Alan Iverson and Carmelo Anthony. And I think there are a lot of people that would say those two guys' efficiency is a little more like what we'd expect for Paulo going forward and not so much LeBron, KD, Wilt, which I completely understand that argument. And then the last thing I was going to say in the 21st century, rookies who've had usage rates above 20% and also had free throw attempt rates as high as Paulo's this season, which by the way is 0.476 per field goal attempt those rookies 21st century rookies are Blake Griffin Kevin Love Chris Paul Amari Stoudemire and Keon Duelling. hell yeah <laughs> bit of a range there but I don't think I necessarily need to sell you on it or probably anyone out there but did want to wax poetic a little bit about the Pison savior Paolo Banquero.
0: had to do it had to do it to him one time shout out Danny yeah. Green yeah. um okay most improved player do, do I need to ask you to repeat your Lowry Markin and soliloquy from a couple of weeks back? Or can we just let that stand?
1: Yeah, I was going to say, just like I told everyone, just go listen to our last episode for my Brooke Lopez Defensive Player of the Year argument. Go listen, to, I don't know, three episodes ago, two episodes ago. Four, I don't remember what it was. A make or miss that I turned into a five minute rant about Lowry Markin. And you can also, that's another one that you can just go watch on the Scores YouTube page. Uh, for, find the thumbnail that says Lowry Bird. And that will be the video uh on marketing but real quick yes i won't take a full five minutes to do it but in case you didn't hear that rant it was essentially just that forget most improved this season in terms of how i viewed a player coming into the season versus what he became during the season this might be the most shocking performance i can remember um i mentioned in that rant that the two guys you can maybe find comparisons to are oladipo and isaiah thomas but marketing's improvement is even more gobsmacking than those guys was And you maybe would have to go back to like Tracy McGrady's first season in Orlando to really truly find it comparable. I know a guy like Shea Gilgis-Alexander becoming a full-fledged superstar is a more important leap. And although I'd, I'd also argue that I actually think Shea was pretty close to being this good last year. And it just didn't necessarily translate into the general acceptance of that like it did this year. But still, acknowledging Kildress Alexander becoming a full-fledged superstar is more important than Markkanen's leap. But I also think the award is who improved the most in my eyes, and it's not necessarily who had the most important leap. And I think Markkanen clearly took the biggest leap to go from solid starter at best last year to having one of the craziest offensive seasons I can remember, averaging Nearly 26 points on 50-39-88 shooting, shooting just under 59% from two-point range. 25-plus points on 64% true shooting in the three-point era. Curry, KD, LeBron, Jokic, Towns, Charles Barkley, and now Larry Markkinen. Pretty insane stuff. He's also 11th overall in on-off net this season. And three of the guys in front of him are non-Jokic Nuggets. So he's essentially top 10 in that regard. And as I mentioned before, even post-deadline, when the Jazz made roster moves and in-game decisions at times, like player personnel-related rotation decisions that insinuated they were tanking, they still won Markinen's minutes post-deadline. I said I wasn't going to go on a rant. I guess I just did go on like almost the same rant I did.
0: Through. No, it's okay. I mean, it's a really incredible leap. And I think as impressive as Shay's leap has been, he ultimately is doing what he did before exactly. at a higher level. It's a little bit different defensively because I think he's made huge strides there also, and that's, that's a big deal. But offensively, it's like he was doing a lot of this stuff before. He's just gotten way better at it. And I'm not saying that doesn't matter or that should disqualify somebody from eligibility for this award. Like, if Markkinen's season hadn't happened, I think this award would probably be Shave's, and he would be very deserving. It's more about, to me, watching a player completely transform. Like, Markkinen has never been in anything resembling this position before where he is the focal point of an offense, a clear number one option. And to do that for the first time and to do it as effectively as he's done it is really, really extraordinary. Like we're talking about going from 14.8 points per game to 25.6, usage rate going from 19.5% to 26.6%. And despite that huge uptick in workload to go from 58% true shooting to 64% true shooting, like that just doesn't happen. I'll just basically piggyback on something that you said where like the player that he wound up being this season relative to the player that I thought he was coming in. And I was, I actually thought he had a really good year with Cleveland last year. Sure, I talked about it. I wrote about it. Like he was good in that role, which was, You know, basically a tertiary offensive option who, again, last year he was playing a bit of a different role than he'd played previously too. He was playing more as a wing, thought he got a lot better defensively. Those were important developments, but it was nothing like what he did this year in terms of the strides that he made. And his ability to thrive in like any offensive play type turned that Jazz offense into one of the best offenses in the league and made that team as a whole way better than it had any right to be. And that Frankly, anybody possibly outside of Utah or possibly even in Utah actually expected them to be this year. Like they were supposed to be a tanker. You know, they were supposed to be languishing near the bottom of the standings. And instead, they were like basically in the play in mix until the last week of the season and probably would have been a play in team if they hadn't made the trades they made at the deadline.
1: And if they hadn't started holding Markkinen out in the last couple of weeks, weeks, right. I think a hand injury, I don't know how legitimate it is, but I think they could have still made the play in even after those trades, if they had kept playing marketing. he gave them that chance. And even to your point about how you don't think even the Jazz thought he'd be this good, even though they probably had high hopes for him, as I joked during that make or miss rant a couple weeks ago, I don't even think the Jazz thought he was their most promising former Cavalier.
0: You think you think they thought Sexton was?
1: I think they thought Sexton was. I, I don't think they think that now.
0: I sure hope not. I thought Sexton was. I, I will cop to that. Um, okay, so Markinen unanimous on this pod. Uh, honorable mention to Shea. Also Tyrese Halliburton and Mikael Bridges. Those were the other two guys who I kind of considered and both also made huge leaps this year. We talked about the Bridges leap, especially since he got traded to the Nets. Cause we haven't talked that much about Halliburton recently, but you have certainly um, spent a lot of oxygen singing his praise praises on this show over the course of this season. He's been incredible and Jalen Brunson as well. Like he was awesome in last year's playoffs and did enough to kind of show that maybe he had this in him, but to then go out and actually do it for an entire regular season and completely transform that Knicks team in the way that he did definitely deserving of some consideration. Uh, let's go to Sixth Man of the Year. Who you got, Cash?
1: Malcolm Brogdon. And not just because he once again handed the Raptors their ass last (laughs) night and rubbed salt in the wounds since he picked the Celtics over the Raptors, but no, listen, I think Emmanuel Quickly is very deserving of being in this conversation. Uh, He also played more than 500 extra minutes than Brogdon and won his minutes by a greater margin than Brogdon did. Anyone arguing Quickly should win the award is an argument I'd listen to and I'd be okay with him winning, but I just think... Brogdon does everything a little better. I mean, quickly, he's a better defender, but I think Brogdon does everything in like a little better, more efficiently. He just does it quieter. Maybe Mm. because he's not like the visual spark plug quickly is in terms of the way they play. And I think especially when it comes to reserves, people gravitate towards that. That's not me saying quickly doesn't deserve to win or it's smoke and mirrors if he does. It's just I do think Brogdon has been the overall better player on balance for the better team competing at a different level than the Knicks are quickly is actually number one in average plus minus out of the 151 players who've come off the bench for at least 40 games. Brogdon is ninth in that regard. Um, other guys I think deserve like some mention, but not, yeah. not to mention Bobby Portis, Malik Monk, Norman Powell, uh, Cole, Anthony, Christian Wood, and Austin Reeves. If he had played more, I think could have nudged his way into this discussion, but he missed like a month and a half of the season and then started some games so anyway yeah but i think it's between brogdon and quickly i think brogdon's been a slightly better player on balance for the better team
0: can't even give my man Tyus jones an honorable mention no token shout out that
1: i should have given him a token shout out you're right that is a name i just missed
0: can i just throw a stat at you quickly you mentioned uh the, the 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 on off. Was it the on-offs you were citing or just the on-? Pure plus minus. I was saying that
1: there's 151 players that have come off the bench 40 plus times this season. Quickly's number one in average plus minus out of those guys and Brogdon's yeah.
0: ninth. So do you know what else quickly is number one in? In the entire NBA, if you filter it, it's, you don't even have to have a particularly high minutes threshold. If you go all players who have played at least 500 minutes this season, Emmanuel Quickly has the best defensive on-off differential in the league the Knicks allow 11.8 fewer points per 100 when he's on the floor and you know obviously like something that dramatic there's probably some shooting variance going into it uh the the differential between the Knicks starters and bench as a whole in terms of who's playing I mean this was already happening so I don't think you can really like attribute it to Josh Hart even though Josh Hart's been great since he got there and playing really well defensively um it's this is a carryover trend you know so it really is a a huge credit to quickly and the defense that he's played like you you mentioned you think he's a slightly better defender than brogdon i think he's actually considerably better again hard to compare because they're very different defenders like brogdon as a guard defender is somebody you want more like guarding up i think more yeah like you can throw him at some of those stronger power wings in a way that you can't with quickly But if you're talking about like disruptiveness, screen navigation, just generally defending at the point of attack, I actually don't think there's much of a comparison. And then I I think quickly is better in terms of uh, his team defense as well. And like his help rotations, uh, his alertness and communication. So I wound up picking quickly and I understand the case for Brogdon. Like the shooting is the big thing. Like him hitting 44% from three is mammoth. And, Isn't his, like you know,
1: effective field goal percentage, like 57 or 58 or something.
0: It's nutty. He's been very, very yeah. uh, efficient this year. Uh, 61% true shooting on the season, doing it for one of the best teams in the league. Um, but and, and then this is another thing that I just didn't know what to do with. Right. Like Brogdon has not started a single game this year. He's he's played every one of his games coming off of the bench, whereas quickly actually started 19 games and been amazing in those 19 games, like averaging close to 23 points on elite efficiency. And I, I, yeah, like technically he's padding his numbers as a starter. So if you're like isolating and looking at just what they've done as bench players, like Brogdon's numbers are more impressive, but this is still an award that in its own way is like rewarding excellence. Right. So I can't just like, throw those 19 games that he he started out the window like they're still an important part of his body of, the, of work for the season right
1: there should be a thing uh for sixth man candidacy 30 guys should be eligible every year and it should be the player on each team who's played the sixth most minutes for each team <laughs> that's who should be eligible and then it would make it clean cut then we know at the end of the year these 30 guys
0: yeah i obviously don't mean this but i just to your point and i know you were joking and being facetious yeah. about that but it actually kind of bugs me when people say like, oh, we need cleaner criteria. Like nobody even knows what the six, ma- oh, nobody even knows what the most improved award is supposed to be. Like we need better criteria for most valuable. It's like, no. come up with your own criteria. That's yeah. the fun of the exercise. Yeah. Like figure it out yourself.
1: Yeah. Just look, does a guy qualify or not? The way you qualify, I believe, is you need to come off the bench in more than half of your games. Correct? Yeah, is that not exactly. The way That's it. That's it. Exactly. So then it really shouldn't be confusing. Is a guy eligible for sixth man of the year? And if he is, was he the best player of those guys eligible? If he was, then he was the sixth man of the year.
0: There you go. So that is the exact approach I took. And that's why I landed on quickly, even though I think it was extremely close and, uh, you know, Brogdon would be very deserving. Again, the shooting has been insane. He's also like, man, he just puts his head down and gets to the rim, Yeah, which is something that Celtics team really needed and, you know, he, he has carried their offense for long stretches with transitional units. He's been awesome. I just kind of think quickly has been a hair better overall.
1: You know what the problem is this year? It's not actually a problem. It's a problem for our uh, podcast content is that I think a lot of these races are two-man races where they're either two-man races or very, like, for example, Markin and I think we both thought was an easy choice. Um, but. MVP between Jokicin and B, defensive player of the year, even though we both had Lopez between Lopez and Jackson, even sixth man of the year between quickly. And I think they are so close. All of them are so close that it's hard to, like I said, like even manufacture some sort of like outrage or shock that someone picked the other guy because it really is that close. I think there have been maybe previous years we've had disagreements about award picks or all NBA picks, whatever it is. This year, I just can't find something to really argue about because between Jokic and Embiid splitting hairs both went
0: Paulo both went Markin, and then between quickly and wait, wait till I pick Tim Connolly for executive of the year <laughs> uh,
1: as long as you don't pick Rob Polinka
0: yeah but I, I do think so it did kind of come down to to those two guys and did really feel like a two-man race like a lot of these other awards but uh Austin Reeves was so good this season. Like, I I really think that he, you know, maybe wasn't quite on that level. But to your point, you know, maybe if he'd played a little bit more, he also kind of really got cooking when they moved him into the starting lineup. Even though, even before that, like, there was a period where D'Lo was out and he was their backup point guard. And he was very, very good in that role as well. So he's been sensational. I think it's an interesting question, actually. Like, if you had to pick one of these three guys to have on your team for next season, who would it be? And why would it be Austin Reeves?
1: Yeah, that's the correct answer. It's Austin Reeves.
0: <laughs> so yeah. And Bobby Portis too. I know you mentioned his name, but I, I just can't say enough about what he has meant to that Bucks team. And that's a team that could definitely go through some serious offensive droughts, especially early in the season. And man, did he bail them out a lot? Like they could just, dump him the ball and trust that he was going to go and get them a bucket when they really, really needed it. Um, And his offensive rebounding for them has been enormous as well. That's something they've emphasized this year more than in past years. They have, I don't know. He's, he's had a surprisingly and sneakily big hand, I think in shaping their identity. And that means something to me. So uh, I gave him a long, hard look too. And then obviously my guy Tyus, John Morant goes out, goes away for a while. No problem. They keep chugging along. Tyus Jones is that good. Uh, He he has to get an honorable mention every single year.
1: I like that you uh, you spoke of John Morant's absence the way uh, TV wise guys or movie wise guys talk about a guy, a mobster. (laughs) And I I don't even mean this at all in connotation because of what John Morant missed time for. I just I just thought it was funny that you said he went away for a while because that's yeah. I did not at all. That's usually how mobsters (laughs) talk about a guy uh doing his bid and not squealing and ending up uh Ah, he went away for a while
0: uh yeah i'm gonna leave that there i'm not gonna touch that one uh let's what do we have left here coach of the year right coach of the year exactly
1: i think we're gonna be unanimous on coach of the year i hope
0: we are it's gotta be mike brown
1: yes yes and i don't like i don't agree with it necessarily just going to the coach whose team overachieved the most but at the same time come on even you who were quote unquote high on the Kings I think you had them as like what finishing ninth or tenth and that was going to be like if they had done that I would have said that's a nice story the Kings made the play in they got some form of unofficial postseason basketball I had them 11th in the west they finished third or they they should finish third but they're going into the last week of the regular season with a chance to still finish in the top two with the most efficient offense of all time I know not necessarily the best offense ever in relation to league average but still factually correct to say they've been the most efficient offense of all time just a phenomenal year they haven't really had a drop-off at all like they've consistently pretty much been a top three west team all year the teams come together beautifully i think brown he's brought a certain spirit to the sacramento kings that that franchise especially has desperately needed not that this is the reason i think he should win it but i do think him eventually winning it is just another layer or chapter in what's been the league's best story this season. It'll be 14 years after his first coach of the year award. This is his first job in nine years as a head coach He spent six years as an assistant with the warriors. Um, just everything about this King season has been really storybook and fun. Mike Brown has been a part of that. And as an overall coaching performance, I just don't think you can find a better one than the guy who has the Sacramento Kings in third place in the Western conference going into the final weekend of the regular season.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's one thing to be the coach of the team that happens to overperform by the most. And it's another to be a huge architect of that overperformance. And I think Mike Brown's fingerprints have been all over this, not just in terms of his spirit or whatever you want to call it, but like he completely redesigned that offense. Like it, it looks nothing like their offenses looked in any previous season. Like, and I know that has to do a lot with the personnel, but he still had to figure out how to best utilize that personnel. And my God, has he done that? Like, just th- like what he has done with Sabonis as a dribble handoff hub, uh, you know, in pistol action, like <laughs> as, as a post player and everything going on around him, like all the movement, all the stuff that he pinched, frankly, from the Warriors playbook from when he was an assistant coach there and basically applied to this Kings team and just made it sing. Like, you can just tell while watching them how well coached they are. And, like, I think what really speaks to me in terms of, like, how well-drilled are your principles is, like, what are you doing late in a possession? Like, as a possession goes on... And I know a lot of these teams are just sort of playing with flow principles and they're not, like, running sets necessarily, you know, even the majority of the time... But it's more about like, okay, like, like options A, B, and C have kind of already been taken away. Maybe it's a bit of a broken possession, but when guys are still moving around and not just like moving around and like trying to figure out something to do and somewhere to go, but moving around in this very choreographed way where one thing happens and then immediately like the next guy, like the guy on the weak side knows where he's supposed to go. 45 cut, guy lifts from the corner, like... All of that is happening in perfect harmony. And when you see that, when there's like six seconds on the shot clock and guys are still moving in that sort of synchronized fashion that says to me like, okay, you, you are like very well drilled in your offensive philosophy and your movement principles. And I mean, we even know that because I think like we have it on record from, I'm pretty sure like Kevin Herder maybe said it on the low post podcast, that the Kings practice more than any team in the league. And I know that's not really in vogue in this day and age where like rest and recuperation is all the rage, but man, like this is kind of showing the value maybe of practicing that often, like having those well-drilled principles and having this offense that can just flow like water for 48 minutes.
1: I also think it's just a a cool story as well that, or a cool development that, Mike Brown was seen as a defensive coach who wasn't hmm. necessarily that creative offensively and got by because he coached LeBron James for X amount of years and gets to Sacramento and ends up helping create this insanely high powered offense. And again, it's going to finish with the most efficient offense ever and just compl- like perfectly tailors the offense to his team's best players and the team's strengths and plays the cards he was dealt as perfectly as anyone could have played these cards i when i wrote about the kings a couple weeks ago a few people commented that they didn't think i should have mentioned brown in terms of getting any credit for the season because he's a defensive coach and their defense sucks and therefore what has he done and i just think that is such like pea brain logic and like i said i actually see it in the opposite way where here's a guy that had this reputation as being a defensive coach personally don't really think there's anything he could have done different (laughs) defensively that could have squeezed chicken salad out of this chicken turd defensive <laughs> unit but what he created on the offensive end was beautiful and he made the most of the roster he was given and at the end of the day that is a coach's job you can say what you want about wanting a coach to like raise a team ceiling that isn't really there on one end of the court but to maximize the talent at your disposal is all you can ask of a coach and nobody did that better than Mike Brown this season.
0: Yeah. uh, I agree. I mean, Mark Dagnall certainly making chicken salad out of chicken shit. I still don't really understand that metaphor, but we're rolling with it. Uh, He (laughs) squeezed every possible thing out of that Thunder roster and deployed them in really interesting ways, especially defensively. I think he deserves a ton of credit for that. And, uh, J.B. Bickerstaff in Cleveland, yeah. like, I think he, he's he been fantastic. Uh, Will Hardy in yeah. Utah.
1: Ty Lu said at one point this year in December, yeah, before I remember you a Chaz Clippers game, that um, he thinks Will Hardy has brought offensive sets and ideas to the NBA that he's never seen before in his decades of playing and coaching in the league, which I think is really impressive when one coach says that about another. Also, shout out Jacques Vaughn, man. He's not... He, he only coached, like, half the season, but to or more than half the season, I guess, but to inherit the situation he inherited and to lose Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving midseason w- between those guys being in and out of the lineup with injury and then getting traded and still have the Nets and now like a very new look ragtag team that just came together at the deadline with these young guys still playing at the level they're playing at. He's not gonna come close to winning it, but shout out Jacques Vaughn. He definitely deserves some sort of honorary mention here.
0: Yeah, and so does Taylor Jenkins for yep. for keeping the Grizzlies chugging in the face of a ton of injuries, obviously the whole John Morant situation. And I don't know, man, I like that. That team is just like a well-oiled machine at this point. Like somebody goes down, somebody else steps up and they just keep winning. Uh, and then honestly, not that he needs any extra shout outs or credit at this point, but Bud. He's Mike Buttonholder, man. I, I've said it before. Like, I know he gets hammered sometimes for the micro stuff, which I, don't even think is really that much of an issue for him anymore, but he has long been one of, if not the best macro tacticians in all of basketball. And it's like, he comes into the season with like every year they come into the season with some new sweeping defensive mandate. And this year it's like, not only are we going to be the best team in the league at suppressing shots at the rim, we're also going to take away the three point line and here's how we're going to do it. And yes, he has, exceptional defensive personnel at his disposal that allow him to do that but i think he also has the foresight and the wherewithal to know how that's going to work one like really small example of that is like you you think of the bucks as being this drop and chase team right like brooke lopez is dropping back their guards are chasing over top screens um i don't know if this is true anymore but I, i know somebody who has access to second spectrum data. So I was able to ask them to look it up for me because I'd noticed it watching them at the time. This was a couple of months ago. They were going under screens more than any other team in the league. Like watch how often drew or Javon Carter or Wes Matthews goes under a screen. And like, that is sort of counterintuitive. Like they'll do it against even dangerous shooters. Like they'll do it against Trey young, you know, because they trust their ability to go under and still get back up into contact and be able to challenge a shot. And they can do that without having to switch. Right. And then without granting that ball handler, like access to the middle of the floor, like it's just little things like that, where it's like almost seems to be like cutting against the grain or going against conventional wisdom, but it works. And I, I give Bud a lot of credit for that. And I think, you know, he's not going to win this award, but he just should be recognized as one of these incredible big picture tacticians, which I don't think that he necessarily is.
1: Yeah, and I'd also say, um, we've mentioned Brooke Lopez's cool career arc a lot. And and, and I mentioned how this season's actually been a culmination of like this cool arc on both ends of the floor. And I don't think Brooke Lopez's defensive kind of transformation over the course of his career gets enough attention because everyone talks about him going from this low post-dominant guy to this stretch five on the offensive end. But in terms of the defensive end and his transformation on that end, I'm not going to say Mike Boonholzer is completely responsible for it because obviously the personnel there and Brooke Lopez himself deserves credit for it. But Mike Boenholzer also gets a lot of the credit for that, too, because it is very much tied to him arriving in Milwaukee and becoming the anchor of this mostly drop coverage buck scheme that, as you mentioned, is so much more than just that.
0: And Brook Lopez, by the way, kind of veering back toward being that interior scoring presence, right? Like posting up, he's been a, he's been a role man more often this season than he has been the past couple of years. Like just doing what's, what's needed uh, for that offense. Like he, I mean, obviously he's our defensive player of the year. We know how good he's been defensively, but like he's been really good offensively this season too.
1: And I love the fact that Budenholzer uses him differently, whether Giannis is on the court or not. I'm not saying he never posts up when Giannis is on the court, but if you look at the way they employ Brooke on the offensive end, when Giannis isn't on the court and they don't have to worry so much about him crowding Giannis' space down there, he is used as that kind of old school, the guy who rode that shot diet to becoming the Nets all-time leading scorer. Type of Brook Lopez, whereas when Giannis is on, yeah, he is more of the stretch five who is creating space for Giannis. So I just think Bud and, and the Bucks in general are using Lopez perfectly on both ends.
0: Yeah, clutch player of the year. Can we just save ourselves I, a lot of time?
1: Yeah, I mean, I way? I completely forgot that. That oh, I guess is this really an actual award though, or is this part of like that other segment of awards that aren't officially league awards? Is this actually one? Is this going to be considered one of the major awards now?
0: I don't know. Well, it's we, De'Aaron we can Fox skip it. either way.
1: Yeah. De'Aaron Fox either way. I don't know what the number is now, but I know when I had checked a couple of weeks ago for that Kings piece, the gap between De'Aaron Fox and second place Demar DeRozan in total clutch points was the equivalent of Demar DeRozan in like 19th place. I don't know. It might have been closed now, but at least two yeah. weeks ago, that's what the gap was.
0: Uh, the gap when I checked this morning was 35 points. I don't okay, know. So way
1: less. There was a time when it was like over 50 points and it was equivalent to the gap between second and 19th.
0: Yeah. Still. Uh, yeah. 35 more clutch points than DeRozan who was number two. And uh, if you want to go by per 36 minutes, which is just a good way to sort of standardize those clutch time stats, because when you say, well, he's played, you know, 119 yeah. clutch minutes and he scored 120 points. It doesn't mean that much, but per 36 He's at 43.5 points on 61.4% true shooting in the clutch. Not bad.
1: Yeah, that's incredible. And another tidbit for you when it comes to Fox being the unanimous winner of the inaugural Clutch Player of the Year award is that, again, as of a couple weeks ago when I wrote that piece, to put Fox's clutch scoring in perspective, his scoring has made up 39% of Sacramento's total clutch time production Jason Tatum who and uh, Embiid might have ta- overtaken him now I'm not sure but Jason Tatum who at the time when I wrote this two weeks ago was the leading scorer in terms of total points scored this season accounts for about 22 percent of his team scoring so to, that's just to give you an idea of how insanely Fox dominated Sacramento's clutch time offense is and it has led to them being this insane clutch time performing team
0: executive of the year. We doing this Monty McNair. Are we giving too many awards to Kings at this point? It it has to be him. Like I don't really, Yeah. Kobe Altman is the only other guy that I could conceivably put up there in this mix, but that really just comes down to the one trade that he made. Although I've said this before, like I think in a lot of ways, the executive of the year is a multi-year award because no team is built overnight. Like every team is sort of built incrementally step-by-step. Step. And I think when that team finally comes together, whether it is just like the perfect move to put it over the top or just like all of the players finally advancing to the point, you know, that they, they gel together and and they've progressed on their development curves and the team suddenly clicks and they take off. It's never just going to be based on like one off season of moves. So in that sense, you could give Kobe Altman credit for the way that he has steadily built that team up in the wake of LeBron's departure.
1: Yeah, 100%. And look, and if the Suns end up winning the championship, I mean, you can say, well, the guy that traded for Kevin Durant should have got consideration in James Jones, but I don't think he gets consideration for this award. Um, I mean, hell, There might be Knicks fans that say Leon Rose and Scott Perry should get some love for the fact that Jalen Brunson is Rick Brunson's son, (laughs) but I don't necessarily think that. I think it's McNair. I think Altman would be the guy I have closest to him, but again, that was that one kind of final, well, not final piece to get them fully over the hump, but one final piece to take them from good team to at least fringe contender at worst. Um, But McNair in addition to hiring the guy that we are saying should be the unanimous coach of the year over the last year, over the last 14 months, he has traded for Sabonis, which although I said at the time, they might come to regret trading Tyrese Halliburton, that potentially could still be the case. You can only judge this based on right now, if we're talking just executive of the year, I think you can only judge it based on how those moves have impacted the team this season. And over the last 14 months, he's traded for Sabonis, Kevin Herter, Trey Lyles, Sign Malik Monk. Signed Malik Monk, drafted Keegan Murray. He literally did the most. <laughs> <and> <laughs> improved his team by the most while doing the most. I think he's at almost as easy a, a pick here as Mike Brown is at Coach of the Year. And he, as De'Aaron yeah. Fox is for <laughs> Clutch Player of the Year.
0: Man, the Sacramento Kings front office <laughs> winning an award for front office excellence. Oh my god. What universe are we living in? unbelievable but it's kind of undeniable
1: a purple tinged universe because that beam has been lit for 60% of the season
0: yeah I, I like you framing it as eh, I suggested at the time they might come to regret trading Tyrese Halliburton is is that how you remember it going down cash no I,
1: I was quite upset with this deal <laughs> and as I said I still think as great and as magical as this season has been and as much as I think Kings fans should enjoy it and as great as DeMontis Sabonis has been I still believe the Sacramento Kings will come to regret trading Tyrese Halliburton in the second year of his rookie scale contract. But that does not take away from what I believe is a deserving executive of the year from Monty McNair.
0: Yeah. We're not raining on this parade, man. The the (laughs) Kings are about to play playoff basketball for the first time in far too long. Uh, Okay. I think that's it, right? Does that, that wraps up the awards? Yes. Okay. We're going to breeze through our all NBA teams now. Uh so I will just why don't I just start? I'll give my first team and you can say if you have any agreements or disagreements. Okay.
1: Based on first team alone. Yeah. All right.
0: Uh at guards I've got Shea and Luca. Yep. At forward I've got Giannis and Tatum. Yep. And at center, I imagine this is where we'll have the disagreement. I have Embiid. And, and I'm I, I, I'm sure you have Jokic. Um, okay,
1: so then can I work backwards then for my second team? Sure. So I, I, obviously have Embiid. You have Jokic, I assume. Correct. I have Jimmy Butler and Lowry Markkinen.
0: Wow, i saying as my
1: second team forwards, yeah. and I and I've got Steph Curry and Donovan Mitchell as my second team guards.
0: Yes, sir. Come on, we're I we said we wanted to breeze through it, man. This is yeah, this is true. this is going perfectly. Uh, third team, I feel like is where we might have some disagreement. Um, so. I am actually not one hundred percent sure, but I'm pretty sure that Jalen Brown is eligible at guard, right? So I had him as my third, uh, my first third team guard, uh, or my second third team guard doesn't really matter. I had him and De'Aaron Fox uh, as nice. my third team guards, and then I had LeBron. In spite of the time missed, I and and it was a lot, like what twenty eight games I want to say he missed or twenty seven. Man, he's been really good when he's been available, and it's honestly like the the guys that would have gotten that spot like either had missed just as much time or I don't think quite rose to the level of being good enough in spite of all the additional time they played. Like Randall has played, I want to say like 22 more games than LeBron has this season. 8,000 minutes this year. He was definitely, he was leading the league I think in total minutes played at one point in time, right? Randall was? Yes. And he's been really good. Like I, he was like, I think my first cut and I don't know, maybe I'm like inconsistent with my criteria sometimes where I'm like, actually the minutes distinction does matter. And then sometimes I'm like, no, it doesn't. And I know that I have mentioned before that I have an aesthetic bias against Julius Randall, but I'm sorry. I could not put Julius Randall on an all NBA team over LeBron James. Couldn't do it. I went with LeBron and then actually uh, my last all NBA forward spot uh i gave to jaron jackson Uh, Wow, and then uh demonta sabonis as my third team center so so i'm guessing we have quite a bit of disagreement on that third team
1: well sabonis was my third team center i had fox and lillard as my third team guards and lillard missed a ton of time on a bad team that was like sat him down the stretch because they were tanking and
0: i get how it's really yeah. this is not like missed it and and believe me we talked about this on this show no he, i know he, I he's know. had one of the best offensive seasons literally so, ever
1: here's my thing is that i get what like how it seems really almost gross you know i'd be like he's a third he's an all nba guy Whose team is so bad that they're sitting him dude for tinging. But I also look at it as like if we're just going on balance over the course of the season, I think he ends up playing what fifty seven games. Fifty eight. So fifty-eight. So even though like re- regardless of why they're sitting him, he ends up playing more than some of the other guys in the mix alley. He ends up playing more than Harden. And like, so I get it. I get why there are people listening here are gonna think it's ridiculous that Lillard makes a team, but to your point, and as we've discussed before, he's having literally one of, or he had literally one of the greatest offensive seasons we've ever seen, and ended up playing the same amount of games as a lot of guys in this discussion. The fact that yes. his team is
0: choosing to sit him uh huh, be- because they stink. Well, so this is the thing, and I, I, I didn't expect going in. like, I thought I was going to have him on one of my teams. I did, because he he really was that special offensively this year. I I went into this thinking that he was going to be on one of these teams and I I got there and I just couldn't write his name in because I'm thinking it's one thing to overlook time missed because a guy was injured and it was something completely beyond his control. It's another thing to overlook time missed because your team sat you down because they were so far out of the mix to even make the play in that it just made more sense to shut you down and no, that is not Damian Lillard's fault exclusively and they were way better with him on the floor they would be completely dead in the water without him but his defense was so bad this year that he does have to take some of the brunt of the blame for that and okay that's just why ultimately i couldn't i couldn't bring myself to put him on
1: I think because he is so blameless in this situation, that's why I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt because even as bad as his defense was, like, look, again, I don't want to rain on the Kings parade, but the the Kings have, I don't know if it's still bottom five, but for a lot of the season, they've had a bottom five defense. And Darren Fox and DeMontis Sabonis have been really bad defensively.
0: Oh, I don't agree. I, I think Fox has been, like, significantly better than Lillard defensively this year. Like, quite a bit better.
1: All right, Sabonis has been really bad defensively. And I... I'm not going to hold that against him because he's been so good on the other end and overall has just been a great player. And I think Lillard has been really bad defensively, really atrocious defensively. But I also think what he's done on the offensive end is more impressive than some of the one-way players that we've got on all NBA teams or that were rewarding in other ways. And then sort of use that against him because his supporting cast just wasn't good enough. And then his team decided the best thing is to sit him I don't think that's necessarily fair. But again, I do acknowledge that there will be a lot of people cringing at hearing Lillard make an All-NBA team despite all of this. Um, But I did also have Fox. So I guess you had Brown, I had Lillard was the only disagreement on uh, our All-NBA guards list. Yeah. And then forwards, I had Kawhi Leonard. (laughs) Okay. What has he played? 50 games this year? I believe he's played about the same as LeBron James.
0: I think LeBron is at 54. I guess that's not that big a difference when I say it out loud. Yeah. and uh, LeBron's, LeBron's at 53 and is at 50. Okay, fair enough.
1: So that's what I'm saying. Are we really going to say
0: three games makes a
1: difference? The one guy that I thought was going to be a shoe in until I realized that the games played was that low was KD. I thought yeah. KD had cracked 50 games and I was like, he's missed like 30 games. I'm still going to have him. But I think he's at like 45. 46. He's missed almost half the season. That was the one where, like, I I almost think he still deserves to be there. But I was just like, okay, there does have to be some sort of limit where, like, you can't make an All-NBA team. So, originally, I thought it was going to be Durant, Kawhi. I kept Kawhi, took Durant off, and also put LeBron on there. So, I ended up with Kawhi and LeBron there, both guys in the 50s. And I had them over... Pascal Siakam, Julius Randle, and I mean, Paul George has also missed like 30 games. So I don't think like, he was great, but if we're going from the guys that missed that time, I think he was the third best out of LeBron, Kawhi, and himself. And as great as Siakam has been this season, you know, as much as Julius Randle has done for the Knicks, I think this is an example of when we talked about last episode. Like, voters should have the choice to decide is 53 games of LeBron James worth as much as 70 games of Pascal Siakam? Or was it worth that much this season? I think voters should have the chance to decide that without it being like, nope, didn't crack this arbitrary number. And so that's the criteria I'm using. And again, this isn't even to take away from Siakam or Randall. It's just that even when they played LeBron, and I would say, especially Kawhi, man, when Kawhi got going, once he shook the rust off, he was as good as anybody in the league for a little while there. And maybe other than the top three that we have in the MVP race, like there was a good stretch of the season when he was like at worst the fourth best player in the league for half the season. And to say, well, he's not NBA, all NBA because this other guy who I actually don't think was as good as him played 15 more games, I, I'm not ready to go there. I think the gap between Kawhi and LeBron and these other guys when they played was actually big enough that the games played doesn't matter.
0: Yeah. And honestly, like if somebody wanted to put KD on an all NBA team, I don't think I would really give that much pushback because yes, 46 games, but when he's played this year, he's been, he's had a case for being the best player in basketball when he's played this year. Um, but yeah, 46 games. Plus the fact that he kind of blew up his team season by demanding a trade midway through, uh, made that a little bit tougher, but yeah, there were some tough cuts, man, especially on the guard front, like not having Dame, not having Booker, uh, Ja, Harden, Brunson, Holiday, Halliburton, DeRozan, Garland, Trey Young, Anthony Edwards, like. Dude, at center, Anthony David, like we've said, like if he had
1: played just a little more, he'd be, he'd be there. But like Sabonis has been that good. And like, look how much we've talked about Brook Lopez the last two weeks. I strongly consider putting Brooke at 13, but and that's the thing. And he still didn't crack their team. And if AD had been healthy, what would Brooke Lopez be like the fifth team centered? So yeah, I mean, as we've always said, the the level of talent is just insane right now. The quality of basketball is on another level. It's very yeah. fun to cover and to guard,
0: guard rich for sure, though. Like that was yes. where I was like, wow, I yeah. cannot believe I'm leaving all these guys off more than at any other position. Okay. And we did that in a reasonable amount of time. Not not this episode in general just that part of the episode this episode in general is absurdly long thank god it's a long weekend because it might take that long for our listeners to get through this but i thank them all for listening if they've made it this far and i hope they enjoyed it and it uh, helped make their long weekend that much better i think that is our wrap on the regular season cash how do you feel about that
1: i'm good so yeah well let's hold make or miss and uh, one of the fan shout outs we've got banked until next week just because this has gone on long enough
0: i agree again Happy Passover. Happy Easter. Enjoy the long weekend. It has been uh, an interesting regular season to say the least. And, you know, it's not quite done yet. We have the more to sort out over these next couple of games. And then next time we talk to you, the play-in will have concluded and we'll be looking ahead to the playoffs. So until then, we will leave you with this mammoth regular season ending episode of Pound the Rock for Joseph Cacharro. I'm Joe Wolfan. We'll talk to you all soon.